Welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Online, you can follow us at Faith on Hill on social media. That's where video versions are always available on our Facebook page and on our YouTube channel. Also, if you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you can search Faith on Hill and find all of our podcast content, including the Starting Points Podcast, 20-Minute Bible Study, and this Sunday morning service. In person, we're at our building on Hill Road. We gather together for prayer, worship, the study of God's Word, and community together as a family of believers. We have Kids Church, and starting in just a couple weeks, we're going to have our outdoor lawn chair church, which we look forward to doing every summer. It's really chill. Uh, We hang out. We have uh, canopy tents that we put up in our field, and we have just a chill summer service for about a month or so until it gets too hot in August. We have uh, small groups that meet throughout the week, and you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. We are going to finish up the book of the Revelation probably next week, but today we will be in the book of Revelation chapter 20, so you can open up your Bible apps, your actual physical Bible, whatever you're using, and turn to Revelation chapter 20. Well, I don't know what your week has been like. It's been uh, kind of a weird week weather-wise. You know, we've had beautiful sunny days and, you know, we've had the barbecue grilling, been out doing yard work and uh, getting some stuff done. And at the same time, we've had thunderstorms and hail. And, you know, uh, the other night we were out, you know, I'd grilled some chicken, we were out eating dinner, and then all of a sudden we hear these thunderclaps and pack every, you know, all the outside stuff in a little bit. Uh, We pulled the blueberries up under some cover. Uh, We have them in these kind of potted plants out in our front yard, and so we pulled those under some cover, and then all of a sudden we got a thunderstorm with some hail, and it was, what is going on? Crazy weather. And now it's beautiful and sunny outside. As we continue our study in the book of the Revelation, uh, we don't have crazy hailstorms. That happens in different parts of the book. But we do have what's actually a fairly divisive chapter among church people. You know, when we do our our Starting Points podcast, what that is, is that goes, you know, Genesis to Revelation. It covers all the books of the Bible and all the major sections of the Bible. And one of the questions we talk about every every time on that podcast is the landmines, the divisive points, the the things people argue about or have issues with. When we get to Revelation... I guarantee chapter 20 is going to be one of those landmine chapters. Christians argue about this chapter more than most things in the book of the Revelation. And it has to do with the millennium. It has to do with uh, this thousand-year reign of Jesus on this earth that Revelation chapter 20 talks about. One of my goals on any Sunday morning, but this Sunday morning in particular, is that this is not 
a seminary class. It's not a Bible college class. It's not uh, getting into minutia and details that most people don't care about and that, quite honestly, doesn't apply to most people's lives. There are people who are interested. There is a place for that sort of thing. Uh, when I went to Bible college, I took classes in the book of the Revelation. I took classes in eschatology, which is the overall study of Bible prophecy in the end times. Uh, I, I took uh, some stuff with Revelation uh, in my uh, graduate work. I'm very interested in this, but I recognize that most people aren't, so I'm trying not to have it be that sort of thing. What I do want to talk about is how this affects us, how this appoints us to Jesus, and things that can be practical both in our day and in our own faith. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, says that John saw an angel coming out from heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great train. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus, because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or on their hands, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign over him for reign with him, excuse me, not reign over him, but reign with him for a thousand years. Okay. So the divisive point is the thousand years. Is this a literal thousand years? What does it mean that Satan is bound? And what does it mean that people will rule and reign with Jesus for that thousand years? It says that this angel comes down and binds Satan. I find that interesting. What? I think what is interesting about this isn't that Satan is bound. It's who does it. People have this idea that the sort of yin and the yang, the equal opposite, the light and the dark, and that God is waging this war against the darkness. But Satan's not bound by God. He's bound by this angel that God dispatches. God doesn't even lift a finger. Satan is still bound and defeated. We have this idea in our culture that Satan is more powerful than he is. He is certainly powerful. He is certainly waging war against the people of God. He is certainly doing evil things in this world. Some people underplay that. To their detriment. At the same time, he is not God's equal and opposite. He is not so powerful that it's like, oh, is God going to be able to defeat him? No, God will defeat him and will do so without even having to lift his own, you know, his own hands to do so. He'll just send one of his minions to get the job done. He's bound for a thousand years so that he may not deceive the nations. Why is that important? We'll come back to that in a minute. Then it says that for this thousand years, those who were killed during the tribulation, those who were killed during what I believe from the book of Daniel chapter 9 and other places is the seven-year period where the book of the Revelation largely takes place. 
And those who became believers, those who placed their faith in Jesus, will come back to life where they will be resurrected. Those who were killed for their faith because they would not take the mark of the beast, they would not bow before the beast or his image, they would not worship the Antichrist, and ultimately they would not worship the devil. Those are resurrected and they rule and reign with Jesus for this thousand-year period. There is no reason that I can see to take this as allegorical or figurative. As I was reading the last couple of weeks preparing for this, I saw that, historically speaking, the early Christians, those who were either... uh, the generation right after the apostles, or in the successive generations over the next couple centuries. None of them took this figuratively. They believed in a literal thousand-year, or what's referred to as the millennial reign, a thousand-year period where Jesus rules and reigns on this earth. What happens after the thousand years? We'll get to that next week. But for a thousand years, Jesus will rule and reign, and the early Christians took that literally. And then about 300 AD, there started to be a teaching that took hold in popularity that this was allegorical, that this spoke of this general idea of Christ's reign being established on the earth. And there are some, even today, I was reading a a commentator, a Bible scholar that I really respect and I appreciate, but he was saying that a thousand is just a complete number. It's like how we think of a century as complete, a decade as complete. And so he said, you know, a thousand is a complete number. And so, hey, you know, uh, this is just speaking of a completeness, a, a fullness, a perfection of the reign of Christ. Now that could be. I'm not really interested in getting into an argument with anyone over this. That being said, I would point out that the Jewish calendar didn't have things in groups of 10. They didn't think of completeness in terms of groups or multiples of 10, the way that we do. That's a very Western, modern way of looking at the world. The ancient world saw things differently. And John, as you go through the book of the Revelation, this is a very Jewish-centric book in terms of its outlook and culture and philosophy. Also, let's say that the number is complete. It's It's just saying that there is a complete perfect segment of time where Jesus will rule and reign. Well, why not a thousand then? I mean, if thousand represents some kind of complete fullness of time, why not literally a thousand years of Jesus's reign? He's not going anywhere. What, what's, what's to stop him from, from ruling and reigning for a thousand years? I don't see a reason to take this as allegorical. Why would somebody do that? Well, okay, so if you go back to when this teaching that the thousand years is just allegorical or figurative took hold, what was happening? In 300 AD or or thereabouts, Constantine became emperor and declared Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. I've said this before, or at least I've, I've hinted at it before in the study of the book of the Revelation. But Revelation... The book itself speaks to an end of human government. It speaks to the evil of human government, the corruption of human government, the failures of human government, the failures of human organized religion. And what just happened? Human government made your religion 
its officially sanctioned organized religion. And now you have a whole book of the Bible that is a, a, a word, a prophecy, a message against those systems. you got to change your outlook if you want to succeed. Why is it that this became popular? And I believe that what's going on here in, in, in general terms is that those who wanted a state religion, those who wanted to join Christianity with nationalism, needed to find a way to make the Bible fit this new paradigm. This is a warning. It doesn't matter if it is right, left, center, libertarian, progressive, whatever label you want to put on it. Whenever the church, historically speaking, and history backs this up time and time and time again, whenever the church tries to merge with nationalism or politics, it is bad for the church. And it is bad for the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is bad for the work of the kingdom of heaven. It is not good. So why is it that you have to change that? Well, now the emperor is on our side, quote unquote, supposedly. You have to kind of make it palatable. This is figurative, your excellency. It's not literally speaking of a time when your reign will be done and God will reign literally. It's speaking just metaphorically. Or maybe somebody says, hey, For a thousand years, you know, we now have a Christian emperor. And metaphorically, this is speaking of the reign of Christian Rome and that for a thousand years we will have justice and faith officially sanctioned and then Jesus will come back. I guarantee that teaching went around. Understand that there is always going to be a temptation to make the Bible fit whatever your political view is. One of the things that's frustrating to me, and I'm just going to be honest here, frustrating to me as a Christian individually, as a pastor and a Bible teacher, that I see this meme going around or versions of it, but there's been one going around the last couple weeks on social media. And it's sort of a biblical Christianity versus quote unquote modern Christianity. And one of the big ideas is, you know, biblical Christianity is not worried about offending anyone. Biblical Christianity holds to the Bible as true. Okay? I guarantee this. I guarantee this. If I were to go into the churches of some of the people that I know personally, I have relationship with. These aren't just strangers. These are people I know. I've known in some cases for decades. And I know the churches they go to. And if I were to go to their churches and on a Sunday morning get up and if I were to preach certain parts of the Bible, they would not be happy. And why I'm saying that is this. If we're going to say, oh, I want the Bible to be true and authoritative and I'm not worried about offending anybody until it's pointed at me. Until the, the, the light, the, the, the focus of the scripture is pointed to me and my worldview and my place in things. And then I find out that maybe I'm not as comfortable as I thought I was. And what's going on here with this this idea of is this a literal thousand years that Jesus will rule and reign on the earth, it's contrasted with the current system. And as long as the current system is what we love and embrace and believe in, that will always challenge it, that Jesus is coming to wipe out the current system, to supplant any sort of human organized government or religion and say, I'm going to take that out and I'm going to replace it with truth. I want Jesus' reign. You know what? 
we have an election every four years, every two years we have by-elections or, or you know, that's a, well, that's a European way of calling it. Uh, every two years we have the, um, the midterms is what we call it. I pray, I ask the Lord for wisdom, and I vote because that's my obligation as an American. But I'm under no illusion, no illusion, that uh, we don't have a corrupt system, that we don't have leaders who are corrupt. Actually, this last week, I watched some uh, congressional testimony being given. And I listened for the questions being asked, and you could tell which lobbying group had given money to which congressman or which senator. It was pretty evident. And what you realize is that whoever you vote for, if they have any sort of prominence, they will be bought and paid for. And it doesn't matter who. That the, the, and it can be, you could say, oh, that's just the national level locally. Really? You know, I grew up in Seattle. And you don't realize how corrupt things are until a light is shown on it. And a couple years ago, there was this guy, Chris Hansen. And Chris Hansen wanted to bring the Seattle Supersonics back to Seattle. And uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of, I, as a kid, I loved the Sonics. I was a big basketball fan as a kid. And so I was so excited. And then what happened is you found out that the Seattle City Council was bought and paid for by these interest groups. And they had interest in not having a basketball team back in Seattle, or at least not having a basketball team uh, where Chris Hansen wanted to make it viable. And so they said, no, we're not going to do that. And you started to see, oh, this council member is bought and paid for by this special interest group, and that council member is bought and paid for by that special interest group. What I'm saying is, is that it doesn't matter where you're at. We live in a broken and a corrupt system and setting. And if we don't understand that there is coming a time where Jesus will literally rule and reign on the earth, in some way, I believe we are giving ourselves over to the illusion that the current system is good and okay. All prophecy must be fulfilled. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, and Matthew, his gospel, chapter 3, verse 15, both uh, tell us this, that all prophecies must be fulfilled. And there are prophecies in the Bible that have yet to be fulfilled, both Old and New Testament. There are promises that God made to the people of Israel that were never fulfilled. And there are those who say, well, we, the church, have replaced Israel as God's people, and so those promises are now given to us. Fine, we've never seen those fulfilled. So even if the church has replaced Israel, which I don't believe we have. I believe that we were grafted on to the family of faith. I believe the book of Romans talks about this repeatedly, that God is not done with his people Israel, that God still has a plan for them, and that a lot of what happens in the book of the Revelation isn't about us, the church. It's about God calling his people back to him. But even if, even if we have replaced Israel and all of the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament are now for us, as the church, which I don't agree with, but that is a theological position that is prominent and widely held, and I don't want to disregard that position. Even if that's the case, those promises have not yet been fulfilled. There are places in the Bible, in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Isaiah, and in all the minor prophets, where you can see specific prophecies made that have yet to be fulfilled, and they must be fulfilled. All prophecy will be fulfilled. And as I understand the scripture, it is during this thousand year rule and reign of Jesus 
that all of the prophecies concerning Israel will be fulfilled. This thousand years of peace. Now, it says that Satan is bound for a thousand years so he can't deceive the nations anymore. Why is that? It is because humans will still be born and living. As near as I can tell, Revelation chapter 19, Jesus returns to the earth and returns to the earth with the armies of heaven with him. And as as I understand that, that's all of us who are believers. We come back with Jesus. And those in that group that is mysterious to us, but those who come to some sort of, they come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation, but they don't seem to be the church or the people of Israel in the same way. They're brought back to life and they rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. There are still people alive. There are Jewish people who were preserved. That's been talked about in previous messages. There are uh, people who uh, did not, uh, they weren't Jewish, and, uh, but they didn't bow their knee to uh, the Antichrist. They didn't take the mark. And so they, they're there and they're alive when Jesus establishes his reign. And then among those people, children will be born and grandchildren will be born. During this thousand years, you know, you could be 500 years into the reign, right? And all of a sudden, you've had successive generations who have lived and who have died under the rule and reign, the good kingdom of Jesus for a thousand years. And then they still have all of the issues of humanity. As we can tell, as near as we can tell, they still have all of the issues of humanity. They're born. Uh, the world is the world is still uh, not fully restored yet. That hasn't happened. Um, you know, there's certainly things will be better. Jesus says is going to rule and reign with a rod of iron. No human trafficking. No war. No uh, substance abuse. All if you remove the things that take away from human flourishing. No war, no, no substance abuse, no human trafficking, corporate price gouging, gone. All of these things that take away from human flourishing, it's probably going to be a pretty sweet deal. But at some point, there will need to be a choice made, just as every human has to have free will. Well, they could still choose to not believe in, you know, to follow Jesus. I mean, not believing in Jesus, I think, would be a different thing because there is a... Uh, I mean, he's physically there on the earth. You know that he's real. But, but in our hearts, we still have to make a choice. And when the thousand years are over, verse 7, it says that Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out and deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and he will gather them for battle in the number like the sand of the seashores and they will march across the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, what this is saying is there will be a final rebellion. Remember I said earlier that all prophecy must be fulfilled. Ezekiel chapter 38 and chapter 39 speak of Gog and Magog. And I'm not going to teach Ezekiel 38 and 39, but the short version is that uh, Gog is a city and Magog is the ruler of that city. Historically, this has been associated with Russia or the Slavic nations. And some have taught uh, that what will happen is in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it talks about Gog and Magog, 
the city of Gog and its ruler, coming from the north with other allies and surrounding Jerusalem and that God destroys these armies. And some have taught that this happens even before the rapture, that at any point these nations could come against Israel, God will destroy them. Possible. You know, in, in Bible prophecy, there's this idea of partial fulfillment and full fulfillment or first fulfillment and second fulfillment. Jesus came once, first coming. He will come again Second coming, partial fulfillment of prophecies, full fulfillment of prophecies. So it could be that this happens, but more likely, this is talking about what happens at the end of this thousand years. Satan dece deceives people from all corners of the earth, leads a, a rebellion against Jesus' reign, and they are destroyed. The final rebellion is needed for human free will. People will make the choice. In fact, I mean, look, they're going to have the Bible, it's very possible that people will know this is coming. Hey, we're in this thousand-year reign of Jesus. This is wonderful. There's coming a time when Satan will be released again for one final, oh, I, I won't turn. I won't do that. And yet people will. Then, in verse 11, well, sorry, at the, before we get to verse 11, it's important to note that there will come a time when the devil is finally thrown into the lake of fire, as we've said repeatedly. Hell is not the dominion of the devil. It was created for the devil. He is not sitting there ruling the kingdom, and he's in charge of all the bad people. He goes there not to torture or torment the bad people, but to be tormented himself for his crimes and his wickedness. It says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There are those who teach what's called annihilationism, this idea that um, once a person dies, instead of being tormented eternally, they are just obliterated. That is not what I see the scripture teaching, eternal life or eternal judgment. And the scripture here seems to uh, indicate that as well. Verse 11 then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up its dead that were in it and the death and Hades gave up their dead. What does that mean, the death and Hades? This is this ancient concept of an underworld, a place of holding, and they were given up uh, that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So these books are open, and these books are the accounting of what every person had done, good and bad. And you're judged according to, you say, well, what about the good things? Isn't that enough to get me into heaven? No. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin are death. The judgment here is just kind of an indication. It's like, how bad is your judgment? So there are people who, you know, did terrible, terrible things, and it seems like it'll be worse. And there are people who did bad things, and it seems like it won't be quite as bad, but it'll still be eternal judgment. It's not good. There's no good version of this. There does seem to be justice in that, you know, you get the idea that like people who committed genocide, child molesters, that sort of thing will have it worse than others, but everybody gets it bad. There's no good outcome. Well, I'm, I'm not that bad. Hell won't be so bad for me. It'll still be hell. It'll still be bad. So this whole thing, everybody whose name is not written into the book of life. How do you get into the book of life? Jesus. My sins are were taken care of by Jesus. 
The invitation is for everyone's sins to be taken care of by Jesus. You don't have to have yourself thrown into the lake of fire. You don't have to find yourself judged on that day. Every person has the opportunity to say yes to Jesus. Every person has the opportunity to say, Father, I have sinned. Forgive me. Make me new. I want to give my life to you. But those who have chosen, they will enter. And friend, I don't have any comfort. Oh, well, you know, there's purgatory, right? Maybe some people who were, they were, they were pretty good, but they did some bad stuff. They'll go to this place of purgatory and then they'll get out. There is no purgatory in the Bible. There is no purgatory proclaimed by the Christian faith. Any church or group of churches that teaches such a thing is teaching a human-invented tradition or teaching that has no place in the Scripture. We aren't saved by our good works, nor do we get ourselves out of hell after we've served a penance for a thousand years or a million years, and then we get out and now we're in heaven. No. We stand before God based off of the work of Jesus Christ. And there is no get-out-of-jail card here. Everyone had a chance. Everyone had a chance. But the good news is that for those who do believe, chapter 21, verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the, he- for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Uh, we'll talk more about this whole thing about no sea next week. But it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death. No more mourning, no more crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are true, trustworthy. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. To those who are victorious will inherit this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly? The unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Verse 5, Jesus says, Behold, I am making everything new. Heaven's mysterious. People have these ideas that are false, that people just sit on clouds kind of in this like zoned out, zen, blissful contemplation. That's not what the Bible describes. There are many things about heaven that the Bible is mysterious about. In the same way that Old Testament believers understood that things would change, Jesus is, is all through the Old Testament, but we're also told by the apostles that it was mysterious to them. In the same way, what is coming in heaven is mysterious to those of us who are believers. But what we do know for sure is enough. Heaven is a real place. It won't be some place in the sky. It's the new heaven, the new earth, a new creation. It will be a real place and there will be real purpose. You're not just going to sit around like, what am I going to do? 
God created, when he created the original situation, the Garden of Eden, you know, and Adam and Eve there, what did he do? He said, here, here's your purpose. Everyone needs purpose. Everyone needs a role to play. We were designed and created to be part of something. And God is going to continue that design in us. The tears will be wiped away. The pain and the suffering is gone. But the purpose, the reality, the life, that's not gone. That doesn't disappear. There will be a place of action and moving and doing and creating and happening. But there's no more sin. Free will is is something that we, in our free will, we chose sin. And then God made a way of salvation. And we freely choose to live in this restored new life. Now, is there the possibility that somebody could sin again in heaven? Put a pin in that. We'll talk about that next week. But what I would say is this. What we do know is that there is coming a time when Jesus will rule and reign on this earth. But even then, the old order will fail. Even Jesus' reign, the best, the optimal thing that you could have on this planet. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is released and people turn against Jesus and they follow the devil. So Jesus has to start everything over. New heavens, new earth. He gives us purpose, place, eternally new. Now, it says that he will wipe away every tear from every eye. There'll be no more death. The old order of things has passed away. And everyone has asked this question at least once who has read these words or the similar prophecies in the book of Isaiah. Does that mean that we will remember our life here on earth? I cannot say with certainty because the Bible does not say emphatically. My personal opinion is yes, we will. We will remember and know the works of God. That we will remember and know what we were saved from. We will also have an, a, a more or a perfect understanding of all things. So if, let's say that there is a friend, family member, loved one that you care about and they are not in heaven. They are not with the Lord for eternity. I can't fathom that right now. In faith, I believe that I will have a perfect understanding and that the pain and the suffering and the mourning and the crying will not be part of that knowledge. That the, the, the suffering and the hurt from human brokenness, from a broken system, from a world that is corrupt and given over to the devil, gone. Do I believe in this hope? I do. And the invitation is there for all who would believe. The most well-known verse in the Bible is so applicable here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he's not going to let it keep going as it is. And he is going to start fresh and new and restore all things. This, I, this, where Jesus says, I will give whoever's thirsty, I will give the waters of the spring of life. We'll see this next week that there's restoration and there's healing. I actually believe one of the things about eternity is that it's not just real and it's not just real purpose, but it will be eternally new. We won't be there a million years and go, oh my gosh, I want something different, but eternally refreshed, eternally new. That is exciting. That is wonderful. That is a glorious hope that we have.
And we don't have to look far. We don't have to look far to see, oh my goodness, the world is broken. Jesus is the answer. The invitation is for any and all who would believe to say, Jesus, I want what you have. Help me to figure out the rest, but I know I want what you have. And that invitation is for you, where you are at right now. Look forward to seeing you next week as we finish the book of the Revelation. We'll see you on our podcast. We'll see you in the small groups. God bless you. Have a wonderful week as we rejoice in the great hope of the glory of God.